On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. This is part two of our interview with Margaret Mitchell. I, I guess there's tons of things that really fascinate me and that I hope to get to it at some point, um, but uh, uh, it's hard to always find the time for all this. Um, yeah, so um, one thing that I would really love to work on more is robotics, like things that actually move around in the real world. Um, because I work on... A researcher at Google... Uh, Margaret, in part one, we talked about a lot of um, different subjects, but but here, I'm interested um, when you think about um, the way that the world of machine learning and, and AI and deep learning have all evolved and are, have become what they are becoming, um, where, where do you think Google has an unfair advantage or, or why is Google a fun place to be um, when you work in this space? Hmm, those are two very different questions. Sure. Um, pick, I can pick whichever one, one you like better. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it would be better for me to just speak to uh, why Google is a fun place to be. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, it's probably the, the less risky thing to talk about. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, but yeah, I think Google's a really fun place to be in part because of the free food. I really love the free food. Um, this is a big thing for me. Um, I think it's also a fun place to be because so many of the people here are just so brilliant. And like, it's so amazing to me that I can just walk down the hall and like talk to all of these people who are either autodidacts or they've, you know, gotten PhDs and all these subjects. And I can just you know, pick their brains for all kinds of information. Um, so it's really, it's really a privilege, you know, you really have this sense of privilege being here that you get to like have access to all this stuff all the time. That's uh, really nice. Yeah. It kind of relates to something we were talking about in the first half of the interview, it seems like about the advantage of connection. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely true. I feel like it's, uh, hard for me to do research in a vacuum. I mean, some people that's not true. You know, everyone has different kind of research styles. But uh, for me, being able to actually communicate with different people and, and get their insights on different aspects of the problem is, is super, super useful for me to sort of refine uh, the approaches that I'm going to take. Sure. Um, so I'm interested, you know, uh, we talked for a minute about, you know, school and, and, you know, by the time you'd, you'd done everything you'd done and after your PhD doing your postdoctoral work that, you know, you'd spent some serious years <laughs> in that kind of study. What do you feel like were um, some of the things that you didn't expect or some of the aha moments when you, you know, you went here and then you go to Aberdeen for your PhD and then you go do the post postdoctoral at John Hopkins? What were some of the interesting parts or the unexpected parts of that progress? Yeah, so I had never expected to get a PhD. And honestly, like, I had never even heard of a postdoc until I was like, in my third year of PhD or something. <laughs> I was like, talking to my partner at the time. And I was like, so apparently, there's something else that comes after PhD. And he was like, what? How come no one told us? Um, and so I actually thought that I would finish after undergrad, and I would be done. Um, but then I just had these 
kind of questions, sort of research questions, just things I was curious about that I really, really wanted to play with more if I could. Um, and someone pointed out to me that if you want to publish something, um, it's, it's usually a double blind reviewing procedure, which means that they don't know who you are, you don't know who they are. So you can really be anyone uh, to submit a paper. You don't you know, have to have some prestigious affiliation, you can be whatever age. Um, and so I kind of on my own started trying to figure out, okay, if I, if I wanted to be someone who published, you know, I'd have daydreams, like my name on a piece of paper, like that was a published research paper, how cool would that be? Um, what would I want it to say and what would I want it to look like? And as I started playing with that, um, I realized like, oh, well, I could keep working on this maybe if I got a master's, but, uh, but that's it. Then I'm done. Just, just quick, just quick master's. I'll do like a one year thing and then I'll be done. And, um, in the meantime, the paper that I had been working on ended up getting accepted. Um, so that really, what was it on? Uh, it was on uh, pre-nominal modifier ordering, uh, which is like, okay, that's like a lot of words. It's um, basically like adjectives and stuff before a noun. So big red ball sounds more na natural than red big ball. Okay. So it was like trying to figure out, like, can we build a model that would predict this kind of thing? Hmm. Um, uh, so uh, it kind of like launched me to keep working. And I realized through my master's that, uh, by the time I was finished with my master's, I would know what all the current state-of-the-art problems are, um, but I wouldn't really have really strong solutions for them. It was like just starting to get juicy. Um, and so even though I hadn't planned to get a PhD, I was like, well, you know, uh, it's, just, it's just getting interesting. Just as the time that I'm finishing my master's, it's just starting to get really interesting. Um, so I think the the sort of, there's a few ahas there. One was that like you don't have to have this big plan to be a PhD to become one. You can just kind of follow what you find interesting um, and then you know end up on that path. Um, and then another one is that you can publish no matter who you are, or where you come from, or at least you can submit papers to be considered. Um, so there's not you know uh, a really strong barrier to submitting papers for consideration. Um, which can really lead you down a research path if you're interested in doing that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, and then contrast that from from school to at these big giant tech companies now, Microsoft and Google, that mm -hmm. following that and chasing something that you feel like is juicy. And, yeah. And how that's, um, how kind of that background maybe gave you an edge or or how you feel like it prepared you for what you're doing now in the corporate world. Yeah, that's definitely uh, the sort of like looking for something and just it's starting to get juicy and then following it to the end is, is definitely what being a researcher is like. Um, so at, at, both, at both Microsoft and Google, um, I, I've had and I have a researcher position. And a big part of that is A, being able to find interesting problems, uh, B, working on them, um, and then C, working on them to points of completion. Um, so a lot of people will, you know, have, have difficulties with different aspects of this. Um, like a common problem is that you might work on something and work on something and work on something and never really know where to stop. <laughs> and so having deadlines to like force yourself to, to put something out can be actually really useful. Kind of going down rabbit holes um, and things like that. 
So I suppose that, you know, having these deadlines of like, okay, uh, I'm going to finish undergrad and then I'm done. Okay, I'm going to finish master's and then I'm done. Um, really forced me to like pursue something and then follow it to a completion point, even if I wasn't totally satisfied with it. Um, and then, you know, ending up picking it up again because I still wasn't satisfied with it and continuing it on into further education, um, which is also part of being a researcher. You know, you, you often will put out several papers on one kind of topic or, or one line of thinking um, just because with each piece, you can you can have some endpoint, uh, but then you have so many other questions and so many other things you you want to do. Sure. Well, and I'd be interested in your advice for for those of us maybe more on the leadership side of organizations mm-hmm. who who you know might want to hire a researcher or have a researcher and, and want to get the most out of R and D. Do you have any advice for um, how other leaders outside the research space? Can, can better interact with folks in your field to, to be able to get the maximum benefit for an organization or how to help, you know, know, know what's going to be helpful to the organization versus what is a rabbit hole and, and just kind of help translate from the research to, to the applications. Do you, have, do you have any advice for the rest of us? Yeah, that's a good question question and figuring out when and when when something is a rabbit hole and and when something is not a rabbit hole is it's probably something that's useful regardless of whether you're a researcher or any other kind of job you know <laughs> sure, like sure. sort of universal um so yeah i mean for the specific um goal of of sort of attracting researchers and stuff I would imagine having open-ended problems to work on is probably one of the key things. Um, if you have open-ended projects to work on, open-ended problems you want to solve, um, and you know, say in your interviewing you give a small version of that or kind of a you know a sub part of that, and in the interview people are able to kind of solve it um, or or solve or begin to solve it. Um, I think that's that's probably a really good way to to connect to potential useful researchers for your company. Yeah. Um, do you know, like, as you think about whether it was the work you've done at Microsoft or what you're doing now at Google, um, are you familiar with any of the ways that that has been translated into something for consumers, or or how the research has has later been adapted? Yeah, yeah. So at Microsoft. Um, I, one of my projects was image captioning, um, and we had won the first place in this uh, computer vision conference for image captioning. And so the first thing I did with that was figure out how to turn this into something that would be beneficial. Um, and that ended up becoming the Seeing AI product, um, which is a Microsoft product for people who are visually impaired. Um, and it does image captioning, which I worked on, as well as a ton of other things like object recognition and scanning barcodes. Um, and I was involved basically end to end in that, which was really, really fun, just kind of seeing how a whole company you know, goes from something on my computer to an actual thing that's being launched and is available on tons of people's uh, mobile devices. Um, and then at Google, I'm pretty plugged in uh, to a, a ton of different products. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's less I can say actually, sure. Uh, <laughs> actually, so Microsoft and Google have slightly different kind of policies around this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but uh, Microsoft's pretty open, uh, at least out of Microsoft Research. Google's like a little bit more. Um, Skunk works. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I can talk about, for example, uh, Conversation AI, uh, which is a project that comes out of Jigsaw, uh, like looking at things like toxicity and text. Um, so, you know, if someone's bullying online or something, you want to be able to flag that for auto moderation. So, you know, that bullier might be removed from the platform or something like that. Um, and so, like, developing ways to do testing for that, developing ways to um, understand the models, which is um, an area of machine learning called interpretability, um, and seeing how that can impact what gets prioritized. Um, that's also been something that's really fun to work on. And, um, yeah, it's, it's great to be part of that process. Yeah, it's interesting um, the reputation risk, you know, I think about different organizations we advise on different things at Mylan and, um, especially from a marketing perspective, people want to have connection with their customers, but they don't want, you know, 50 of their customers to get turned off because one of their other customers of what one of their other customers was saying in the comment section or such right, and such, exactly, you know, exactly, reputational yeah. risk. Yeah. 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 Let's do this. Let's take a quick break from the sponsor and then uh, we've got some more questions for you. Okay, so Margaret, right before the sponsor break, um, we were talking about ap applying the work that you've done um, and, and how that actually turns into the real world. Um, uh -huh. When you think about what you want to work on next or, or the things that are most intriguing to you going forward, obviously there's some things you can't talk about, but is there is there anything that you you know, that you can talk about of, you know, this really fascinates you and you hope to get to it at some point? Uh, yeah, I, I guess there's tons of things that really fascinate me and that I hope to get to it at some point. Um, but uh, uh, it's hard to always find the time for all this. Um, yeah, so um, one thing that I would really love to work on more is robotics, like things that actually move around in the real world. Um, because I work on language generation, um, so, so like taking, you know, images and then describing them. Um, that's something that's a little bit harder for people to understand at parties and stuff. So one way that my partner would often describe it is he would say, she makes robots talk. <laughs> that's what she does. She makes robots talk. <laughs> and then people would uh, ask me those questions about robots. And then I couldn't ever really answer because I was like, no, I don't actually work on the robot part. I work on the talking part. Um, but it also made me really interested in like, man, how would, how would all these research questions change if I was dealing with something that was actually walking around and interacting with things in the real world? Um, I'd love to get more involved with that kind of stuff and figuring out how to use, you know, both the visual signal. So, so what the robot is seeing and the auditory signal, what the robot is hearing and other kinds of metadata you can get, like floor plans and things like uh, things like that, in order to figure out, you know, where you should go, uh, what you might be able to do. Um, I think that's that's a really fun area. You know, it's interesting. Uh, obviously, there's a lot in the press these days about autonomous vehicles. Yeah. And and we think about that so often just as cars. Right. But, you know, the the other forms of transportation or the the robotic applications of uh, autonomous you know autonomous machines essentially yeah um seems like a natural evolution doesn't it yeah definitely um yeah and it's it's cool to see all the progress that has has been made with the, the autonomous cars and self-driving cars too um 
I'm really fascinated by the evaluation procedures of that work because, you know, if you hit a stop sign, like that's, it's a bummer, but it's not a big deal. If you hit a person, like that is a big deal. And so uh, another kind of area that I think could use a lot more uh, examination and I'd love to see, you know, more work on um, are, are ways to evaluate in terms of different kinds of societal risks um, and really just sort of weighing those in your evaluation really well. Yeah. Interesting. Well, um, besides people connecting with you on Twitter and your website, do you want to tell people what your Twitter handle is and your, your web address? Uh, sure. So my Twitter is mmitchell underscore AI and my website is m-mitchell.com. Um, and yeah, feel free to tweet at me or, you know, ping me in things. Uh, I'll maybe respond. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, maybe, maybe kind of as we wind up here, um, if you were going to make the case for folks that are maybe interested in machine learning or AI for their organization, whether that's, you know, nonprofit or government or for-profit, whatever it is, um, but are intimidated by it or don't really know where to start, mm -hmm. what, what would be your pitch for, for jumping in and learning more? And what would be your advice of, of the baby steps of, of how to start figuring out how it might be helpful to their organization? Yeah, so I guess one thing is is uh, don't be don't be scared to get your hands dirty with uh, numbers, or don't be scared to get your hands dirty with code. It can kind of seem intimidating at first, but you know if you spend a little time getting cozy with it, it's it's not so bad. Um, just you have to get over you know that kind of initial oh this is a different language, this is a different kind of reality, um, and uh, and a lot of the stuff becomes really really approachable. Um, one language to be aware of in particular is Python because it's really relatively easy to read. Um, and so, you know, if you're sort of curious to learn more about coding and, and how to program some basic uh, AI technology stuff, taking a look at, at, at Python and um, some, of the, some of the tools available at tensorflow.com could be really useful. Um, and then, you know, once you get a basic vocabulary, a, lo a lot of things become less intimidating and really easy to connect with. Yeah. And, and what about folks who don't see themselves learning Python themselves, but could see themselves hiring folks who do know it or things like that? What kind of advice would you have about knowing who, like knowing how to choose someone that's a good fit for an organization or what, what kind of things to look for when, when bringing on someone who, who could be an internal subject matter expert? Yeah, I guess the ability to, to talk to you and, and translate your ideas to, to something that's programmed. So uh, for me, I look at people who can have conversations across the board in businesses um, and then either you know clearly articulate or direct to engineers what that ends up meaning you know, in sort of computerese um, or being able to um, implemented themselves. I think the ability to really bridge between, you know, um, more more business focused language and more engineering focused language is is really an asset in a company. Um, and so so people who can kind of you know um, span that divide are really useful. Yeah, it's such an interesting idea translation. You know, when I was in the energy business, um, we were consistently doing projects that I had no idea why it worked. I didn't. I wasn't a I wasn't an engineer, right? Right, right. And when I thought about, because we spent a lot of money on 
lawyers and accountants and engineering advisors. And, and um, I guess for me, I really felt like it was a bit of a litmus test of like, I felt like the most, um, I don't know, the best engineers or the best evaluators we ever worked with were the ones that could take yeah. something extremely complex and, and they knew it so well, they could simplify it so that yeah. everyone else could understand it. And exactly. It was, it was yeah. almost like evidence of their evidence of their superior knowledge that they could simplify right. it. Yeah. 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 It's, it's really useful. It's a really useful skill. And then also, you know, that you kind of can get what you want, you know, because it won't get sort of lost in translation. <laughs> yeah, That's such a good point. Well, listen, thanks for spending so much time with us here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been really fun. Well, great. Um, again, everybody, m-mitchell.com. And uh, you can keep up with all her uh, papers and speeches and, and all sorts of stuff is on there. Thanks again. Thanks. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and... Trent Mano. I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or four hundred million dollars. Anyways, he uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks.